0: Do you ever feel like you wake up in the morning, you turn on the news, or you stream across your, your, your iPad, or your phone, or something like that, and you're catching up on the headlines, and you think this world is broke? Uh, you know, uh, it seems like our health is broke right now, right? Uh, I feel like sometimes I make too big of a deal of COVID. And then at other times I feel like I make too small of a deal. And again, I'm talking about me. I'm not talking about you, uh, because I know you're perfectly balanced in that. All right. Um, you've got it all figured out how to balance that act out, but it's, it's, it's incredible. The, uh, the offenses that happen across those fences, um, related to health, uh, I think we also seem to be broken in the political world, right? I don't think our, our, our political system is broken. I think we seem to be broken in the political world. E- either, either you're on the camp that this is the most free and fair election ever, and that we have really good systems and securities in place now, or you're thinking, no, stop the steal. Uh, whatever camp you're in, don't amen to any of those, okay? We don't need to divide the church. It's already divided enough. Uh, but just realizing that in our world of brokenness, it feels like our political world is even broken. I know our marriages seem to be broken in some ways. COVID has either brought marriages together. We are having a baby boom in the church. I don't know if you realize that, but we are. Um, but there are also marriages that are struggling because of all the time together. Uh, it's exposed some cracks. And that was before, before COVID happened. We had identified, we'd worked through as pastors about 15 different marriages that what we were calling marital insecurity. That the, really their future was weighing in the balance. We had families all lined up to mentor families to help them navigate through the complexities of marriage. And so sometimes our marriage is broken. There's so much about this world that seems to be broken. Then it comes to us. We are broken. We have to understand our brokenness. we live in a world that it, sometimes we break ourselves, sometimes brokenness happens to us, and we become more broken over that and what do you do with that brokenness and how do you handle that? Uh, John Leo published uh, some articles in u s uh, News and World Report but has has written a, quite a bit out there on victimization in our in our society and he reports that 92% of Americans can either identify with one or more multiple offenses that has happened to them or they have done it to themselves. But just think about that. Hang out there for a moment, because immediately you probably go to uh, sexual abuses, uh, neglect. You go, you go to, you go to uh, uh, maybe different kinds of abuses that are more criminal, criminal abuses. Something that sends somebody behind bars or something like that. But that that is certainly true. But then there is other abuses that have happened to you. It's happened to most of us, ninety-two percent of us, if if we're in the in into that pool of the uh, of the ninety-two percent. And when you think about that, there's racism. And I don't talk about just, just one particular color of racism. I was having lunch with somebody just this past week and they say, I feel guilty about being an Anglo-Saxon white American uh, male. And, and, and he had to explain, and it didn't take me long to realize it, that he felt even racism as a white person. Uh, against him. And so, uh, you know, whether it's that or sexism, uh, men can only do this or women can only see things this way. And that happens in our society or addictions, addictions happen to us. And sometimes we bring them on ourselves. Sometimes we are born with these addictions, and sometimes a proclivity to them. Diseases are transferred. Even this is all in the list of uh, John Leo's reporting you know, of all the victims that happened. And he wrote this long before COVID was out there. But even passing on diseases, I wear this crazy thing not because because uh, I want to, not because I am fearful so much of COVID. Even though I think it's a very legitimate thing out there, I don't want my maybe. uh, uh, maybe, uh, ability to to handle COVID. I don't want me to have COVID and pass it on to you. So the reality is I need to wear this for your sake, because I don't know when I come across somebody of immune compromise. But again, that's a part of the victimization, the victimized world that we live in. It's a broken world. And it leads me to the question. I said, we would be talking about this at some point in this series, theodicy, the idea of, of how can a good God, an all-powerful God, allow bad things to happen? And again, today we're not going to answer this in its entirety, but just when you break down the word theodicy, what does it mean? Theo meaning God, uh, dice meaning justice, the justice of God. How is God just when he allows good th- bad things to happen to good people? Either he's not a good God... Or he's not an all-powerful God. Because if he's an all-powerful God, surely he wouldn't, he would stop the bad from happening in the world. Or if you go over there, he's not a good God because otherwise he would, he would, he would, he would circumvent that. He's not an all-powerful God. He can't seem to stop it. That's, that's the theodicy question that is out there. Every time you come to that question of why does good things happen or bad things happen to good people and why can't God stop the evil of our world, the brokenness of our world? Why do we all have to scheme to be fighting? Why does, why does divorce happen? Why does abuse happen? Why does victimization happen? I don't want you, I, I, I don't want you to blame God. I want you to go back to Genesis chapter one and verse chapter two and remember that when God made us, he made it right and good and perfect and beautiful and systems and rhythms that were supposed to be there for us to maintain the goodness and the rightness of all, for, uh, of all God's design. But as we started a few weeks ago in chapter three, it all changes and changes immediately in chapter three. Whenever you look, at, start looking at chapter three, this is kind of a series within a series of a series. Uh, we're doing a study through the book of Genesis that's going to last us most of the year. Uh, but it, we're also studying between now and, and Palm Sunday, the first 11 chapters of Genesis. But in that, we are going deeper dive into chapter 3 because there is so much in chapter 3. And this is the end of chapter 3 today, as we will be at today. Two other messages prior to this, you can catch them online. But they're important because they all fit together. They're sequential Okay, so you're, if you're coming in the first time today, you realize that there's something that led up to this message today. And that something that led up to it is a God-canceled life. We live in a canceled culture, right? You've heard that phrase? There's a God-canceling that have, has happened. And in the story of Genesis in chapter 3, we have verse 7 verses where there is God-void section. It is not God, it starts with the serpent, it moves to the woman and moves to the man. Chapter 3 is a, is a is an incredible artistic expression in and of itself. But it starts with Satan and it moves to woman and then from woman it moves down to man and there is no mention of God. Now let me just say this real carefully. The chapter 3 verses 1 to 7, the canceled God culture, is a microcosm snapshot of most of humanity. Because most of humanity will live their lives so much about making themselves like God. Which is exactly what Satan tempted Adam and Eve with. You will be like God. And they will erase God and cancel God. Now they won't do it if you're in this room today. They won't do it if you're watching online today. But oh, we will. It's called practical atheism. Whenever we live a life that is unconscious of God, we live a, a life as if God really doesn't matter to the decisions of my everyday life, and we, we really live by, by, by our passions and not by principle. Passion-centered living, and we talked about this last week, is the lust of the eyes, the the lust of the flesh, and and, and the pride of life. And they're really the things that suck us into this world. We're no longer living by principle. That's listening to God's principles and precepts and listening to His voice and following and stepping in line with with Him. It's whenever we allow the passions of our flesh, the passions of our eyes, the passions of our pride, take over and dominate who we are. And if you want to see a great overlay. Of a commentary. A, a, a scriptural commentary. To Genesis chapter 3 verse 6. Where you see all three of those. Lived out in Eve's story. You go over to G- first, first John chapter 2 verse 16. And you'll find where literally. John the apostle is writing about them. So we're talking about 4,000 years later. 4,000 years later. It is still these three passions. That trip us up. Nine times out of ten are 99 times out of 100. we got to be careful of living the God-canceled life. But there's also this other life that happens in chapter 3, and it's the relational life. It's whenever God shows back up. See, most of us are living... I'll say most of us, I'll say many people across our land, across the world today are living in verses one to seven and they're living it in a cyclical form. They're living it over over and over and over and over and over and over again. They're living their life to make their life great, to make their life famous, to make their life more pleasurable, to make their life like God, to figure it all out on themselves without any reference to God. What happens in the next verses is God shows back up. And God does show back up in all of our stories. He shows back up. And on that time, there is this conversation. Now notice this goes Satan, woman, man in the first seven verses. This time it goes God, man, woman, and no conversation with Satan. In those verses, in these next verses, it really becomes about, hey, you and I are in a relationship together. I made you. I put you. Hey, by the way, this is not your story. This is my story. And you get to be a part of it. Can you hear that one more time? This is not Mike McDaniel's story, and I get to live Mike McDaniel's life. This is God's story, and I get to live in God's story. And if I don't believe that, go back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. It is His story. I get to live in His story. And so when God comes back on the scene, He shows up in the garden. They can run and hide because now they're realizing that they just sinned. And so now He's going to have to deal with them about that. Here's a life principle for you. Because when that God conversation re-engages... It sometimes happens whenever you hit the bottom. It sometimes happens when you get caught. It sometimes happens whenever you're sitting in a surface just like today and all of a sudden a rush of wind, hot flashes come over you, sweaty palms. How? Has he been reading our mail? Where did he get this? Mm-mm. I don't read your mail. I have enough hard enough to read my mail. But the reality is that God is wanting to be in this relationship with you and what he will do is he'll come back into your story. When we have been living a lie, we have to wake up to the truth. That's the life principle. And sometimes we live this lie and it's like a dream. And we, you remember how you have a dream, you wake up from that dream, you oh, I want to finish that dream. Well, that's that's sometimes how sin is. We're living a dream, we're living a lie. And all of a sudden, we hit the bottom and we have to wake up. The problem is, is that some people go take some more sleep pills and they go back to sleep so they can get back into their dream. Instead of waking up, And they go from one dumpster fire job to one dumpster fire relationship to another dumpster fire relationship. And they wonder, why do I keep having all these dumpster fires? They never wake up. They never wake up. Which then leads me to the last part. And this is a real truth moment here, by the way. But it leads me to the last one, is, and that's the justice in life. The justice in life, and it goes notice the order we went satan man or satan woman man no god second section goes god man woman no satan the last section in a very poetic kind of way it goes god satan woman man you just jot those verses down you read them for yourself and tell me if i'm wrong he literally reverses the order, goes back to the top, but where it was Satan, God, man, woman, man, this time God inserts himself. And that's the day of consequences. That's the day where we have to come to truth and consequences. Because here's what, what, what's really happened in our story is that we have learned to live this verses 1 to 7 and it's an autonomous life. That that God-canceled life is an autonomous kind of living, kind of lifestyle. Where I'm going to do it my kind of way. And what we have to realize is that there's going to be, when we choose to live an autonomous life apart from God, then we will have a day of truth and consequences. Let's talk about the truth and consequences today. Two realities of giving to, into an autonomous living is, number one is truth. There is a day, and I don't know when that day will come, but it will come. When truth will hit you, and it typically hurts when it hits you. You can believe all the Photoshop paintings, and you can you can believe all that money is going to offer you, and you can believe all that your pride can take you, and believe that you're something in a bag of chips. You you know you what whatever it is, the passions of your life that are driving you, and you can continue to pursue them and pursue them and pursue them. But one of these days, boom, it's going to hit. And when it hits, it's going to hurt. And that's why Moses was so wise in the way he was living, even though he was living in Pharaoh's mansion. He was of the highest caliber of living, the highest standard of living. But what does he do? He leaves it all. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 25, he gave it all up so that he would not, He he, choosing rather to be mistreated uh, with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Let me just tell you this. If you haven't figured it out, sin is a blast. Say it with me. Go ahead and admit it. Sin is a blast. Uh, you Come on, you're weak sauce, guys. This is an authentic church. Sin is a blast. Say it with me. Sin is a blast for a time. Life principle for you. Sin delights and then it bites. It, it's fun. It's the passing pleasures of sin. That's why Noah had enough foresight, enough to look down past those, those those shiny palaces, those those beautiful opportunities, the beautiful chariots, and the beautiful women, and the beautiful opportunities, and the beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. And he looked past that and he said, I'd rather suffer with my people than enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Sin is a vandalism. Listen, look at this. Sin is a vandalism to shalom. God created us in shalom. He created us in peace. He put us in a place of shalom, a place of peace. He, he spoke peace over us. And what happens when we sin is we vandalize our shalom. You're going to hear me say that a lot throughout the rest of this series. So just get it down. It is vandalizing. It is destroying. It is breaking in. It is tearing down. It is uh, it is hurting. It is breaking what God has created that was beautiful and good. This is the way Cornelius Plannington said it. He said, Shalom is God's design for creation and redemption. Sin is blamable human vandalism on these great realities. Therefore, as an affront to their God who is the architect and the builder. God, God designed this world. God built this world. God put it all in place. He said it was good. He said it was very good. And then it was sin that enters into this world that begins to tear everything down. Here's two things that it tears down. When you talk about this, it tears down the relationship. Remember I said this is the relationship segment of the conversation with God? Now here it is. It's the It tears down. Sin drives a wedge between you and others. This is a horizontal effect. We should remember that. If you have your Bibles, look at Genesis chapter, uh, chapter uh, 1. I actually go to chapter 2, and you can look at verse 25 with me. This is the way to describe the first marriage. He says, and the man and the wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. That's a beautiful thing. That's an intimacy, fully known and fully loved. I know all your warts, I know all your imperfections, I know all your bulges, I know all of your everything, and I love you anyway. It's a beautiful thing. Seven verses later, vandalism enters into that marriage, and the relationship begins to be divided. Seven verses later, you go down to chapter 3, verse 7, and you'll find this. And their eyes both were opened. That's what Satan promised. He said their eyes would be open, and their eyes were opened. See, Satan gives us half-truths. And their eyes were open, and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and they made themselves loincloths. Now, don't just get past that. They weren't just going out and doing some organic clothing shopping. They were actually creating a barrier of separation that God never intended to be there. Now there's a barrier. Now there's separation between them. That's what sin does. Sin moves in. And he takes it over in, into our relationship and begins to drive us apart in our most intimate, personal, lasting relationship more than any other. Even our marriage to where I'll start seeing couples will come to me. And, okay, he has passwords I don't know about. She has bank accounts that she won't let me get into. They have this life over here and this life over here. And we just co-mingle in the middle. And I just weep because of that. It's not how God intended it to be. Sin separates us from one another, but it also separates us from God. This is the vertical. This is where it begins to affect us. See, God hates sin. We say this a lot. God hates sin, but he loves the sinner. Right. Absolutely does. Absolutely does. That's the story of creation. But here's the problem. is When sin is there, There can't be a relationship. When there's violation and vandalism there, there can't be a relationship. There has to be, there has to be something done with that. Something's gotta move out. The vandalism has gotta move out. The vandals have gotta move out. The sin has gotta move out if God is ever gonna be back in that relationship. This is a part of the truth. We just gotta own the truth about it. Oswald Chambers said in his June 28th, Devotional. If you don't read the Oswald Chambers, my utmost worst highest, you need to go read June 28th. It says we have to recognize that sin is a fact, not a defect. Sin is a redheaded mutiny against God. Either God or sin must die in my life. The New Testament brings us right down to this one issue. If sin rules in me, God's life uh, God's life in me will be killed if God rules in me. Sin in me will be killed. They don't dwell together. See, God loves the sinner, but He hates the sin, and He can't commingle and He won't share residence with a sinful heart—a heart that's living in open, unrepentant rebellion to God. This is just truth for all of us. In a world of relativism, this does not set well. And there may be some watching online, there may be some in this room, so I said, well, I just, I just ask you this in all grace, if you'll just find me in somewhere in this world where I am off center here, then please, let's talk. Because God is very clear, He gives us truth. That's what He did with Adam and Eve. He said, listen, here's everything in the garden, it's all yours, everything except for one tree over there, one tree, one tree, everything. There could have been a thousand trees in that garden and you can eat from any of those trees, but that one tree you can't eat from, you from that tree today, you'll die. That's the truth. He gives it to us in Genesis chapter two, the lie. Satan steps in, gives us the lie. What does he do? He says, the serpent said, you shall not surely die. Who are you going to listen to? Now you got two narratives. Now you got two stories going on. Who are you going to listen to? You're going to choice. You're either going to become a victim of your own negligence, a victim of your own. You're going to hurt yourself. You're going to break yourself. You're gonna listen, because what he will do is he'll cause us to doubt, he'll cause us to, 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 to deny, and then he'll cause us to, and then he'll cause us to, to rewrite and destroy God's truth. Again, that's last week's message, but just remember that that was there. Because now what happens is we have this, humanity has to be reconciled. Humanity has to be reconciled. There has to be a day of reckoning that ha- comes upon here. When you've been living a lie, you have to wake up to the truth. And, and, and the day of reckoning comes in chapter 3, verse 22 and following. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. That was the half-truth that Satan gave them. Satan didn't tell them to everything else. He didn't tell them that they were going to be banished from the garden. He didn't tell them that it was going to ruin the relationship with one another. He didn't tell them it was going to... He, he, won't, he won't tell you the whole thing. Okay? He'll only tell you enough to get you. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life. That's a new tree we haven't talked about yet. We have the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We have the tree of life. We have all these other trees. They could eat from the tree of life, but they could not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, unless he would take and eat from that tree of life, then live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden, out of Eden, to work the ground in which he was taken. He drove out the man, East of the Garden of Eden, and he placed a cherubim in the flame of sword, and he turned uh, uh, every way to guard the way from the tree of life. The tree of life was what kept human beings alive. Death was never a part of God's design. I don't care what form of death, suicide. Cancer. there is not a form of death that was a part of God's plan. Sin enters in the world. The tree of life is no longer available to us because of our sin. We've been separated from God. We've been separated from his blessings. We've been separated from his goodness. We've been separated from that. Now we've got a real issue on our hands. Sin will, uh, you had a pastor, a mentor pastor when I was younger say this statement all the time, all the time, all the time, all the time. And so it's one of those things I just hear in my head. Sin will, will take you further than you want to go. It will keep you longer than you want to stay It will cost you more than you want to pay. I can tell you of a couple, my very first church. One month in, I was 22 years old. Wednesday night, following a prayer time that we had together, he comes up to me and he tells me of a relational affair that he had with a woman. The woman were card partners. She and her husband, him and his wife, played cards. They did it every Friday night. And all of a sudden, there kind of began to be a spark, and they didn't manage the spark. The spark became a relationship. It was a one-night stand. It was all it was, a one-night stand. But it cost years of damage and brokenness that they were going to have to rebuild from. Sin will always take you further than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. Look at chapter 3, verse 8 and following. And they heard the sound of the Lord God, circle the word Lord God. This is where God's trying to come back into this relationship, walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And what did the man do? man and his wife, they hid themselves. In the presence of the Lord God among the trees in the garden. And the Lord God, three times it calls Him the Lord God. I can't go into that. And all the beauty and the power and the majesty behind that that title of God. But just hang on to that. This is God coming to us to be in relationship with us. But now there's a fracture going on. Man's running and hiding from God. And He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. And I was afraid. Because He asked where they were. I was afraid. Circle the word, I was afraid. And I was naked. And I hid myself, circle the phrase there. He said, he told you that you were naked. Who told you that you were naked? See, they didn't know that before, but now they know it now. Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? He's asking them questions, penetrating questions. Just like God asks us penetrating questions. The man said, the woman whom you gave me. I love that. It's always the lady's fault. And she gave me the tree of free and and I ate. And then the Lord said to the woman, what is it that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Now I I, I could go on reading on in that, but I I just want to stop right there for just a moment because it goes on in and it breaks on on, on down. Uh, uh, And I want us to talk about the consequences. The truth is this. The truth is that now we have this separation between us and our our key, pivotal, incredible relationships. That creates a horizontal divide. But then there's this vertical divide that happens between us and God. And the only thing that that, that, that I can give you one word to describe that is the word sin. Right in the middle. It's what separates us. The consequences, let's talk about consequences. Again, I talked about this last week, that consequences, sin is meeting legitimate needs by illegitimate means. Okay, it was nothing wrong with being hungry. Okay, she was hungry, she could have eaten, but she used an illegitimate means to get that. Just like later on in the story of Genesis, Esau will trade in his birthright for a bowl of soup. Lentil soup at that. But that, that definition isn't actually complete. Sin is more than just meeting illegitimate illegit- meeting needs. It's actually, sin is offending God by meeting legitimate needs, illegitimate means. It's the offense of God that's the greatest. Is whenever we take his perfect order and we rewrite it, we take his truth and we rewrite it, we take his way and we say, no, thank you. I'm going to do it my way. That becomes an offense to God. Tim Keller said this, I heard it a year ago, in January, in a message, and it's hung with me, stuck with me, and I totally agree with it. When you are finished with sin, sin isn't finished with you. Just when you think, okay, I'm done. I'm done. No. Now's the consequences. Now's the time of consequences. Five consequences that you see real quickly in this passage of scripture. And I mean quickly. And I would encourage each of you to take any of these, of these five consequences that you may be living in right now and totally spend a week diving behind it. There's so much to this. Talk to somebody about it. The first consequence is fear. What did Adam say? I was afraid. THE first time. The first time that fear shows up in humanity, it shows up here. God didn't create a world of fear. He didn't create a world that we would live in fear, but fear cripples so many people. It paralyzes them. It's why there's over 500 references to fear throughout the rest of Scripture. 365 of those, he says, don't fear. One for every day of the year. Claim one. Do not fear when you are about to suffer, Revelation 2, 10. Fear not, for I am with you, Genesis 26, 24. Do not fear your enemies. It talks about that in Deuteronomy chapter 3, verse 2. There's a fear not for every day of your year. Number two, shame. I hid myself. I hid myself. I hid myself. You came, God showed up, listen, God showed up, I hid myself. We're going to sing a song here in a moment called Run to the Father. Satan's greatest tool, one of Satan's greatest tools is shame. When you do something wrong and you feel the shame of that, that's not of God, that's of Satan. Shame is not a tool. Shame, shame drives us away from God. Shame pushes us away. Shame causes us to run from God and hide from God. Shame will cause us to go in the other direction. Shame will cause people to commit suicide. Because they can't live with themselves any longer. Number three, blame. Again, I love that statement. The woman that you gave me. She gave me the fruit and I ate it. I, I mean, what a guy, what a, what a loser dude, right? He was passive last week. He's blaming the woman this week. I mean, I've heard this cute statement said before God blamed Adam. Adam blamed Eve, Eve blamed the snake and the snake didn't have a leg to stand on. <laughs> Here's the truth. Hebrews four thirteen, no creature in all creation, no creature is hidden from God's sight. Everything is naked, ironically. The thing that they were covering up is naked and exposed to the eyes of the one to whom we misgive an account. Listen. Blame is not the way you deal with sin. If he would have loved me better, I wouldn't have done that with that person. If they would have paid me more, I wouldn't have done that. If they would appreciate me, I wouldn't have lost my temper. Blame is of Satan. Shame is of Satan. But it's what happens. Guilt is of God. Now, get the two down. Guilt is of God. Guilt holds them accountable. I don't have time to read it, but read it for yourself. 14 to 19. When God begins to pronounce on them the curse... Of one to the other. Starts with Satan, goes to woman, goes to man. Works back through the same process that chapter three, verse one to seven. What is happening is, is is sin is undoing the universal goodness of God. Sin is tearing down the greatness of God. It is reversing the order. See, we were made from the dust, but now we're gonna go back to the dust. And there's so much packed in this. I don't even really have time to, 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 to get into this uh, of the domination and the pain in childbirth and the thorns and the thistles and the, and the things that are going to happen. And by the way, the thorns and the thistles, what, what was Jesus' crown made of? Thorns. Isn't it ironic that the thorns and the thistles that man would have to deal with will be the thorns and the thistles that Christ will bear on the cross? We're already beginning to get a glimpse of the cross which then leads me to the fifth consequence is death. Fifth consequence is death. I want to point this out real quickly in the verse twenty one we find the first death in the scriptures when God goes out and he kills animals to make skin, make clothing for them. this was is the first Animal. This is the first sacrifice. It will not be the last sacrifice. We're going to start here on Palm Sunday. So I'm going to save a lot of that till then, to just unpack from Genesis chapter three and the killing of the first animals to Palm Sunday, where we're going to talk about the, the Jesus who will give His life for us. That God is making a sacrifice here of. Of, of living creatures to cover the sin of man and woman. This is not going to be the last death. We also got to remember that in Romans chapter six, verse twenty-three, it says the wages of sin is death. I think that's not. Uh, it's not new. It's death of a relationship. It's death. Of of life as we know it, but he said on that day you would surely die. It's the death of a relationship with God that died in that moment. On that day, they they could no longer eat of the tree of life that kept their life going on and on. They their bodies began to die that day. There was a death that was happening that was in there. And I want to point to all death of all mankind happens because of sin. I don't care how good, how innocent, how how negligent. uh You can go drunk driver. You can go to the victim of the drunk driver. It all happens and it comes back to sin. But it's not just the death of the body. It's the death of the relationship with God. Isaiah chapter 59 verse 2 says, but your iniquities, that's your sins, have built a barriers between you and your God. Your sins have, 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 have hit his face from you. He does not listen. It creates a barrier between us and God. Even Jesus said, he said, don't worry about the person who's going to take your body. Worry about the one that's going to take your soul and your body. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 28. It's one thing to die physically. It's another thing to die and lose my soul. Romans chapter 6, verse 23. I read the first part. I didn't read the last part. It says, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Can I get a hearty amen to that? The story doesn't end. It does on that day, seemingly in their minds. This is the gloom and the doom. But I want to tell you, there is another end of the story. There is more to come. And again, I don't have time to read it, but you read in verse 14 and 15, you'll read of Satan's curse. And what happens to Satan is he is cursed to the ground. And, and not only that, by the way, cursed to the ground. Notice where, where was Satan wanted to be back in Isaiah 14? He was going to make himself the most high. Now he becomes the lowest living creature. That's what God will do. He'll take you from when you think you're at the top and he'll take you to the very bottom. He does the exact same thing with Satan. Then he also says this, I'll put enmity. I'll put enmity between you and the woman. Between your offspring. That's the word for seed. Between your offspring and her offspring. Singular seed. Satan, there's going to be a war. There's going to be a battle. There's going to be a fight that's going to happen between your seed and her seed. That is a reference to Jesus. And he talks about, he will bruise the hill. In fact, he says here, he shall bruise your head, but you shall bruise his hill. Satan was going to strike. Satan is going to bite. Satan is going to do his, inflict his, his damage, his pain. But the only other time, this verse is references is romans chapter 16 verse 20 when paul is talking to the church and he says to the church "The god of peace will soon crush satan under your feet he says that to the church Who's the church? The church is the bride of Christ. We only have our power to crush Satan because of, because Christ did what he did on the cross. I live the resurrection. I live this crushing power of Satan. I don't live under the thumb of Satan. Th- Satan should live under the heel of my foot. As greater is he that is in me than he is in the world. I don't fear Satan. I fear the person who doesn't fear God. Would you bow your heads with me? God, when I talk about fearing God, I'm not talking about the kind of fear that leaves you running from God. That's shame. I'm talking about the kind of fear that leads you running towards God. I didn't have time. There's so much I could say about so much, so much. I had to just dump a lot of fuel here at the end. You go to Psalm 32 when you get home, and you read how David ran from God for for one full year after committing murder, after committing adultery, ran from God for one full year. Psalm 32. And what does he say? When I confessed my sin, you forgave me of my guilt. See, guilt is what brings us to God. Shame is what pushes us from God. If you're feeling a heaviness today, it's it the, feel the heaviness about God calling you to Him you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. First John chapter one, verse nine. It's not my word. That's God's word. Maybe you're here today and you've been listening. You've been listening. You've been listening for weeks now. And God is saying, would you be my child? He's calling you to himself. He wants to renew and restore a relationship with you. In this space, you just give it to him. Father God, in this space, speak. In this space, work, Lord.